One of the things that I've found that happens to you when you have a very small baby is you start doing some very strange things. So I found myself the other day at something like 5 a.m., like before work, down in the living room, putting on Chicken Run on the telly, which is not a film I'd seen in like 10, 15 years, but it's on iPlayer at the moment. And I don't know if it's baby brain talking or what, but it turns out Chicken Run is a genuinely first-rate film. (laughs) It's it's just objectively... I don't know why it didn't win an Oscar. That's what I'm saying. Not not just a kid's movie. Uh, If you haven't seen it, you're missing out. The basic idea is it's set on a chicken farm in Yorkshire. And it's kind of a spoof of The Great Escape and other kind of old prisoner of war films. The idea is you've got chickens, they're on a farm, and they are trying to escape. So it's, it's very silly. It's a comedy. But actually, I think it's, it's philosophically pretty deep. It's got lots of scope for exploring issues of economics and reputation and class and gender roles and some of the many and varied dynamics of oppression. It's actually, it's, ironically, a really human movie considering it's all about chickens and rats. But one, one thing kept on coming back to me as I was watching Chicken Run, and that was this. The chickens are incredibly lucky to have Ginger. She's the one in the middle at the front with the little green hat. Ginger is the ringleader. Escaping is all her idea. And she risks her life over and over again to try and make it happen. There's a bit of a montage at the beginning where you see her just going in and out of solitary confinement, in and out of solitary confinement, and she's, she's very lucky to come out of the movie alive. But without Ginger, there is no movie. The chickens would live ordinary lives on a chicken farm and, and die ordinary chicken deaths. That's, that's how the story would go. Mac, she's, she's the one kind of at the back with the glasses. She's a genius But without Ginger, she'd never get to use that genius. Babs doesn't get to discover that her creative flair can be harnessed to make some quite impressive stuff. Bunty never learns the true value of her egg-laying prowess. Rocky goes straight back to the circus. And Fowler continues to live in the past, thinking his glory days were 40 years ago. Even the rats, they get a shot of redemption in this movie, and it's because of Ginger. She's just brilliant. And... The only reason I mention this today is because we're carrying on with the story of Joseph. And in the next bit of Joseph's story, he's equally brilliant. So having read Joseph and then watched Chicken Run, I went, oh, Ginger's a bit like Joseph, isn't she? (laughs) Just as the chickens of Tweedy Farm get freedom and life when they follow Ginger's lead, the people of Egypt and the surrounding nations, they get freedom and life when they follow Joseph. And the reason we're looking at, at this at church this morning is... Because although Joseph lived a long time ago and Ginger is obviously fictional and a chicken, they they both give us a great model for thinking about Christ, who we are here to worship, his leadership and what it means to follow him. So let's dive in. If you've got a Bible, do turn it up to Genesis chapter 41. At the start of Genesis 41, uh, we find Joseph in jail in Egypt. Um, I think this picture's from freebibleresources.org or a website like that. You get what you pay for. Um, (laughs) Joseph's totally abandoned. He is the undisputed victim of a a stack of abuses in his past, and that's what we've spent the last few weeks listening to. And things are looking really very hopeless for him. And he's he's been like this for two years, Um, so he's now pretty smelly. 
everything changes in just one day when Pharaoh, the ruler of all Egypt, has a bit of a problem. He's had a couple of bad dreams and they are playing on his mind. He knows that these dreams have got some kind of meaning and he knows that they're important, but he just can't fathom what that meaning might be. We're going to take up the story after he wakes up at verse 8 of chapter 41. So here's verse 8. In the morning, Pharaoh's mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and the wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I'm reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was impaled. So Joseph sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he shaved and changed his clothes, of course, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Pharaoh said to Joseph, in my dream, I was standing on the bank of the Nile, when out of the river there came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed amongst the reeds. After them, seven other cows came up. They were scrawny, very ugly, and lean. I'd never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came first, but even after they ate them, no one could tell they'd done so. They were still just as ugly as before. And then I woke up. In my next dream, I saw seven heads of grain. They were full and good and growing on a single stalk. And after them, seven other heads sprouted up. They were withered and thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. I told this all to the magicians, but not one of them could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's going to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It's one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterwards are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They're seven years of famine. It's just as I said to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. All right, I I love this because it's... it's ballsy, brave stuff from Joseph. Come in, what does he know about Pharaoh? 
He knows that Pharaoh is an absolute dictator. He's got complete power over the kingdom of Egypt. He can and does execute people like that baker on a whim. Pharaoh proclaims himself as a god as well. And yet when, Pharaoh, when Joseph meets Pharaoh, this all-powerful being, as it were, uh, the first thing that Joseph says is, no, you're wrong. <laughs> That's not right. I can't do it. I can't interpret dreams. And, and the second thing he says is that dreams are God territory, not, not, not Pharaoh territory, which is kind of heretical in ancient Egypt. Joseph clearly values God's truth over his own neck, and he gives that prophetic interpretation that he's received from God without any explanation and without any apology and without any prevarication. And I find it inspiring because what courage to share God's truth with power. And what comes next is even more remarkable, really, because Pharaoh only asked Joseph for dream interpretation services, Inc. I doubt he was in the habit of taking policy advice from prisoners. And yet, Joseph has an idea. So he carries on. Verse 33. Now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. This is Joseph's idea. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. And to be honest, I think this is, this is pretty impudent from Joseph. It's cheeky. Pharaoh could have, could have easily condemned Joseph for his daring. He could have said, how dare you get out? And then probably, you know, this is what dictators do. He'd have probably stolen the idea afterwards. But as long as he knew that everyone knew that he was in charge. But instead, Pharaoh recognises the spirit of God is in, at work in and through Joseph, in and through his words. And so it carries on, verse 37. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the spirit of God? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there's no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all the people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne itself will I be greater than you. Now, Pharaoh doesn't know or worship God, but somehow he can't help but see that God is with Joseph and is working through him. And incidentally, this, this can be true for us as well. When we're bold and straightforward and use the gifts that God has given us in the places that God has put us, people do and will see God at work through us, whether or not they know who he is. And at this point in the story, I think we get a massive clue about what God was doing with Joseph during all those years where he was thrown in wells, carted off, people trafficked into Egypt and working in a jail eventually. Because if we rewind and go back to Canaan, Young Joseph, was, he was raw. He was talented, certainly, but he was, he was arrogant and he was entitled and he couldn't really help it because he'd been brought up all his life being told he was better than everyone else. If that Joseph had been made governor of Egypt, well, he wouldn't have done a good job. 
the power would have destroyed him. It would have gone straight to his head. He just didn't have the character to handle that kind of position and that kind of job. It would have been like giving a Ferrari to an 11-year-old. Uh, and I don't know. I don't know what you'd ask a Ferrari, an 11-year-old to do with a Ferrari. But, uh, but after several years that Joseph spent dutifully serving Potiphar and then dutifully serving Potiphar's jailer as a slave and a prisoner. Over that time, by God's grace, the new Joseph has developed the humility, the diligence, the sense of duty and the character that he needs to serve as Pharaoh's governor. And I guess kind of mini point of application, if you're feeling frustrated with your circumstances at the moment, for whatever reason, it is worth bearing this in mind. Because God might be preparing you for something that is completely unexpected that you can't possibly imagine right now. Joseph ends up serving Pharaoh with humility and integrity and he doesn't let those trappings of wealth and power that destroy so many people go to his head. So let's read on and see what happens next. Verse 41. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a golden chain round his neck. There's a lot of changes of clothes in the story of Joseph. He had Joseph ride in a chariot as his second in command and people shouted before him, make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name zaphnath paneah and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and travelled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the surrounding fields. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain, and it was like the sand of the sea so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, it's because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, it's because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt, there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe everywhere. It's a great story, isn't it? It's amazing. One man's faithfulness, Joseph, one man's wisdom, Pharaoh, and putting him in charge, and God's power all combine to save a whole nation from starvation. It's incredible. And 
There's all kinds of things that we can learn about God. We could talk about his creativity. Who else would choose to save a nation through a dream, let alone a dream about some ugly cows? And he does some highly unexpected things. Like, there's no point in Joseph's story where he could have gone, ah, I see what you're doing here, God. He just, he couldn't see what God was doing in his life. He didn't have a clue, but he knew he could trust God's process. But the thing I want to focus on in the minutes that we've got remaining is how this story of Joseph fits in with God's bigger story. Because it can be really easy to think of this as a kind of happy ending or a rags to riches story. Uh, Joseph gets that golden chariot and that chain round his neck and we think, oh yes, inspirational. Let's make a BuzzFeed article about this. (coughs) And I think we're encouraged to think that way. If any of you are familiar with uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, which I I do love. I think it's great. Uh, But it does give a very kind of 20th century moral lesson, which is anyone from anywhere can make it if they get a lucky break. That's, that's That's literally a line from the musical. Um, and there's a problem with this because if you look at the story in that way you're just making it into a Christianized version of the great American dream really it, it, takes, it makes the moral that if we work hard and if we're holy enough then God's going to do good things we can look forward to power and status being bestowed on us we can look forward to a future like Joseph's and um, It's just not true, is it? (laughs) Basically, it's a lie. That's not what God's story is about at all. Um, Just one pretty simple example. Um, In the New Testament book of Acts, there's a story about a man who I think is a lot like Joseph in a lot of different ways. So he's he's a talented administrator. He's young. He's humble. He's hardworking. He's unafraid. He's selfless. He's good. And he's a chap called Stephen. And what happens to Stephen? He, en- he ends up pretty dead, pretty quickly, in a pretty unpleasant way. But he's a hero of the faith. He's an example for us. He's someone we're challenged to emulate. So while I do hope that you're inspired by <coughs> Joseph this morning, and not just by his pecs, um, <laughs> let's not make it because of his personal success either. No. <coughs> The way the Joseph story fits into God's story is bigger and truer and richer and more colourful than anything Andrew Lloyd Webber can imagine. I think the trick is to recognise where we fit in. Because if you're anything like me, you you hear the story and you want to identify with Joseph and it makes you glad, but it also makes you a little bit embarrassed because you kind of compare yourself to Joseph and I go, "Hmm, I'm not really really that bold, I'm a bit of a coward, I'm not really that, that humble, I'm a bit proud. And you feel a bit bad. But God hasn't given us this story to make us feel inadequate and to kind of compare ourselves to Joseph. Because we're not Joseph. We're the ordinary people of Egypt in this story. We are the bread makers of Cairo or the fishmongers of Alexandria or the bricklayers of Giza. We're the ordinary people who would have starved if it wasn't for what Joseph does. If it wasn't for Joseph's spirit plan, spirit-filled planning, leadership and execution, we'd have been dead at the end of this story. And that means we can look at the whole story in a new light. We can just be grateful for Joseph's talents without feeling intimidated or threatened by them. And the best bit of this story is that it is not over. Not really. Because Joseph's story, his rescue was limited. It lasted seven years. They were still tough times for Egypt. 
But the bigger story carries on. Because a thousand years later, Jesus comes and he lays claim to the legacy of Joseph and Moses and Elijah and Elisha and all the other Old Testament prophets who have miraculous food stories. Here he is in John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. As New York pastor Tim Keller would put it, Jesus is the true and better Joseph. Joseph was brilliant. The people of Egypt were lucky to have him as the, they were as lucky to have him as the chickens of Tweedy Farm were lucky to have Ginger. And Jesus is even more brilliant. He's, his is a rescue mission that is even better than Joseph's, or Ginger's for that matter. He's like a ship's captain steering expertly through the storms and squalls and waves and the breakers of this life. And if you're in his boat, you're really lucky to be there. I'm really lucky to have him at the helm. In Genesis, we hear that Potiphar and the jailer and eventually Pharaoh, they all put Joseph in charge of everything. But, you know, they can only put him in charge of the things they actually control. But in Ephesians, God puts Jesus in charge of all things. And God has control of everything, so Jesus has control of everything. And that means your past. It means the things that you've said, the choices you've made, the people you've hurt. And it means your present. The circumstances you're in right now, your front line, the people you meet every day, they're in God's control. And it means your future, the things that you know nothing about, really, if we're honest. And that's, that's where I'm going to finish. You see, ultimately, the reason Joseph was able to lead Egypt with such wisdom and favour was because God knows what the future holds. God knows what the future holds. He knows how you fit in. And he knows how to get you there. I had a, a bit of a picture while preparing this, or maybe maybe halfway between a picture and an embarrassing memory. Um, I was trying to trying to parallel park into a tight parking space on a narrow street somewhere like Chalton. I'd, I'd gone too far in and hit hit a big curb, and so came back out again, and then came back in, and then realised I was about a metre away from the curb, and I couldn't leave the car there, and then you do what you do, right? You start wiggling back and forth, getting gradually more frustrated, toiling away while cars just start tailing back and you can see the queue and you can hear the horns and Reuben starts crying and most annoyingly of all, there's Becky in the passenger seat saying, let me do it. <laughs> um, my pulse was right, was going up and my collar was sweaty and my blood pressure was rising and my stubbornness was just growing. And I think this can be a picture of what life can be like when we're ignoring Jesus. Some of us feel like this right now. There's something in your life that you think you ought to be able to do. You ought to be able to handle. You ought to be able to figure it out. And it's stressing you out. It's embarrassing you. And it's making you stubborn and abrasive. And then occasionally, most annoyingly of all, catching you off guard, you can hear God whispering to you. You can hear God saying, just give me the wheel. Come to me. Pray. Admit you can't do it. And when you, hear, when you hear God, it's just making you more annoyed. But eventually in that parking space in Chalton, I did, with great reluctance, swallow my pride, get out of the car, and let Becky park it. And of course, 20 seconds later, we're safely parked up. Reuben's out. Uh, we could move on with our lives and forget all about it. And I was a bit embarrassed, but now the embarrassment was different. It was the embarrassment that I hadn't let Becky do it ages ago. 
And so I think the challenge this morning off the back of this story of Joseph is, isn't, isn't to do anything in particular. God knows what the future holds. He knows how you fit in. He knows how to get you there. But if there are parts of your life where you know you're just not letting go of the steering wheel, well, don't, don't leave this room this morning without asking someone to pray for you. You can come to the front or go to the back during worship or turn to the person next to you and just ask them to pray. You don't even need to say what it is if you don't want to. I think that's the challenge because we know that Jesus is in charge. He's the king. And that's great news.